This episode was recorded during the 2023 SAG-AFTRA strike. Without the labor of writers and actors, this film wouldn't exist. We stand in solidarity with those striking. Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode, and of course, beware of spoilers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Teresa. And I'm Juliet. I almost said, I'm Juliet. (laughs) No, I'm not Juliet. I'm Teresa. You can be Juliet today if you want to. We're both Juliet. We're all Juliet. We can both be you today because you have two people's worth of work that needs to be done, probably. I mean, at least, yeah. So you can split yourself into two. And it's then... the dream. Yeah. My former boss and I often talked about the fact that we really needed a cloning machine. <laughs> yes, yes. I think that that would be very helpful as long as that your clone is also exactly you at this point in time right yeah i was always worried about like the care and feeding of the clones or if the clones like went rogue and i would lose control of them those are the things you're worried about they would overthrow me yeah yeah. (laughs) they would steal your steal my identity steal your identity steal your life and then you would be the inferior clone yeah the original but the inferior yeah because of course the clone would probably have like some sort of special mitochondrial powers that allow them to Oh, yeah. Be superior, genetically superior. Yeah. There's a whole subgenre of sci-fi films about this exact concern. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And, like, if it's a whole extra person, be, like, taking care of a child. Yeah. The clones cannot be a burden. They can only be a help. Okay, that's fair. So yeah. they have to get their own job. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm not supporting clones. I can barely support myself. <laughs> yes, very fair, very fair. We're not talking about clones today, though. No. That was a sidebar. No. Today, we're talking about Greek myths and specifically, although I guess you could argue that it's not entirely about Gorgons, but that's what we're talking about is the Gorgon of 1964. Yeah, Yeah, this Hammer film takes some liberties with the mythology, but it has a lot of great things going for it nonetheless. Yeah. And you know what? I'll just be totally honest with our listeners and, you know, fork over my horror badge. This is my first Hammer film I've ever seen. As much as I love Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, I have never seen a Hammer film before, so I'm revoking my horror member hall pass or whatever, and yeah, this was my very first one. I'm aware of them. like I know about Hammer films, and I've seen bits and pieces of certain Hammer films, but I've never seen one like from start to finish. Okay. I mean, that's fair. That's totally fair. But you've seen a bunch of them. Oh, I've seen many, many, many Hammer films. I have not seen this film before. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of gaps because, I mean, there are a lot of Hammer films. But I've seen a lot of them. You know, all of the the Draculas and the Frankensteins and all of the sort of one-offs like Twins of Evil and and things like that. Yeah, I I am well versed in the, the Hammer films and I enjoy them. I think they're fun. Yeah. And what we mean by Hammer Films are this huge swath of movies that were made, I mean, going back, I think, as early as like the early 60s and then all the way through up until actually now, there for a while they were done. But it's a studio, right? It's Hammer Studios. Yeah. They made a crap load of movies and they were all sort of these like 
what did you call it um when we were talking about it before like dramas melodramas melodramas yeah yeah, yeah. so hammer like historically goes all the way back to the 30s oh wow um, okay but they really didn't gain their prominence until like the early 60s and into the 70s for their horror films um they made other things but that was sort of their start was non-horror and then they had a decline and then they kind of came back as many early film studios do and then they eventually got into horror which started in the late 50s actually i believe it was around 1955 that they started doing I believe first some like made for television BBC, like, you know, like film for television style things, and then very quickly moved into feature films and really became known, you know, for the ones we all know, Mm -hmm. you know, Christopher Lee as Dracula, Peter Cushing as Dr. Frankenstein, those Mm -hmm. kind of things. Yeah. And, And then they went away again for a while and have come back a couple of different times. They came back in the 2010s, I believe, with some new horror films. Not to the extent that they were in the 50s and 60s. These were like, you know, one here, one there, that kind of a thing. And then they are just getting ready to make another sort of revival with the new Dr. Jekyll film that's Mm -hmm. coming out starring uh, Eddie Izzard. Yeah. And they also did Let Me In. Yeah. The Lodge, Woman in Black. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, uh, I mean, not outside of their sort of like subject matter. Right. they, They have like this sort of manner horror kind of genre mm-hmm. nailed down. They do a lot of movies where it's like, there's a castle and there's some sort of mystery happening where men have to go and investigate. And there's a woman caught in between multiple lovers or, yeah. you know, multiple relationships or competing responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And they kind of have the market cornered on that same sort of genre. Yeah. Because a lot of their movies follow that similar subject matter. Yeah, they really became known, too, because they were sort of the next wave of these, you know, at that point, 20-year-old sort of horror staples, you know, Mm -hmm. Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, The Mummy, that Universal had made popular, you know, Mm -hmm. Universal being of the American studio system. And so this was a decidedly more English take. Yes, on these sort of classic monsters. And then they expanded out into other stories. And although you see those kind of hallmarks of like a universal Dracula in the Hammer Draculas, you know, the capes and the manners and things like that, Hammer made it decidedly more English, but also because it was 20 years later, it was sexier too. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. that that's the thing. If you know nothing else about Hammer, a lot of people know it as like, cleavage yeah (laughs) you know like these these beautiful actresses you know in these low-cut like you know empire waist gowns you know being seduced by the monster that's what people on the very very surface know hammer for and that is certainly a part of their legacy but also the sort of um kind of melodrama victorian novel take on these sort of classic stories and monster stories is definitely their thing yeah and not to say that they get like boring or rote they're definitely tons of fun in either case like watching that mystery unravel because they don't always go exactly in the way that you would think Um, yeah you know they're not like cleaving to the book or or cleaving to the the prior movies or anything like that and this one is really no exception although it's called the gorgon 
and there is a snake-headed, you know, evil, ugly woman, as they say ugly. I didn't think so, but whatever. They call her Megara, which she's not, she wasn't the, you know, she's not the Medusa of myth. Yeah. So they kind of are like on purpose mashing together a whole bunch of different Greek myths Probably because they're like, look, we have one movie to do the Greek myths in, and the next movie, we got to get back to the werewolf, vampire, Frankenstein thing. So let's just mush it all together. So Hammer had a really, really loyal fan base back in the day. You know, they had the Hammer House of Horror magazine that often featured comic book adaptations of their films. This one included, if you get old issues of Hammer House of Horror, and fun fact, a lot of those are available as PDFs on different like internet archives and repositories. So if you're interested in that, you can do some Google searching and find a lot of those old issues if you don't have access to them through, you know, a comic store or a used bookstore or something like that. But they had this very, very loyal fan base. People were really, really into this internationally. And the idea for this film actually came from a fan in Canada who wrote into Hammer Studios and said, you know, for your next film, I would like to see, and I I don't know the exact specifics of what this fan pitched, but it was a fan pitched idea that they then developed into a full screenplay to kind of take on the monster of Greek mythology. Nice. Yeah. And of course, I mean, if you already have an entire studio built and dedicated to just making movies like this, it's pretty easy to just repurpose it and be like, okay, all we have to do is really get a story together because everything else is already taken care of. Yeah. So that's another parallel between Universal and Hammer is that especially in their heyday, they were able to consistently crank out so many genre films because they were, in essence, a studio. Mm -hmm. You know, they had sound stages and things like that. Hammer was based at Bray Studios in England, this historic studio site in the English countryside. And that is where all of their sort of seminal films were made. And they had sets that they would redress and repurpose, you know, your laboratory set, your prison, your castle, you know, all of these things that would show up redressed over and over and over again in their films. And just like Universal with their classic monster movies, because they had sound stages and studio lots and things like that, they could do a lot very quickly. I think that is one of the many, many things that has changed in sort of Hollywood and filmmaking since, you know, the early days that has inhibited a lot of studios from being able to kind of consistently do even franchise films. You know, if you don't already have the sets and sort of a home base for horror, if everything is a one-off, it becomes all the trickier to source locations and develop films and things like that. Yeah, I just looked up a picture of Brace Studios and it's actually out kind of in the middle of nowhere, just surrounded by like grass and water. So it would be very easy to, you know, conduct whatever you need to because you don't have to worry about necessarily logistics of like filming in the middle of, you know, London or something like that. And you can get up to all sorts of shenanigans out there. It's pretty cool. It is. And Brace Studios was going to be completely shut down and demolished at one point. And thankfully, it has been revived, you know, especially after the prominence of Hammer. There was this kind of moment where it was falling under disuse, people weren't using it enough, but it is back and they're making movies again. Fun fact, another thing that was filmed at Bray Studios Rocky Horror Picture Show. What? Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. 
because you need a big, well-made castle. And where better to find a big, well-made castle that's probably not going to charge you a whole lot of money (laughs) than England and Bray Studios. Yep. Because obviously the budget for that was shoestring. So. Oh, yeah. They also sort of celebrate it as one of the places where the road to modern visual effects were born. Oh, you know, okay. because they were doing so many innovative things with monster movies and effects and things like that there. It, it became kind of a laboratory. You see these sites, you know, in different points in film history and in horror history and Hammer is important for that. It also later became a site where a lot of seminal, especially English musicians, would go and use it as rehearsal space or studio space or to develop like big like touring shows so Pink Floyd used it a lot to sort of rehearse as they were going on these big kind of epic tours which if you've ever been to a Pink Floyd concert or seen any of their concert movies like the live at Pompeii Mm -hmm. or the Pulse you know those are big involved productions and to rehearse them well to be able to take them out on the road to not just have the band in sync but all of the crew and the effects masters and things like that you need space to do that and Mm -hmm. so often I don't know if either of those two specific Pink Floyd concerts were rehearsed there but bands like Pink Floyd that were doing these big productions would rent the space and rehearse there ahead of these like giant stage shows that we saw emerging at the end of the 70s and into the 80s. It just goes to show that really great stuff can come out of like these shared kind of cooperative studio situations Yeah, where you have all of the things that you need to play around and you have this space where you can experiment Yep, and things, really good things, not only for the productions that are made there, but also like on down the line, you know, there's this lineage of people who are like, hey, I learned how to do this like blur transition with film, like film to film at Bray Studios and now I'm going to go and make that better or use that in other films. Right. So right. It's kind of like having a community theater where you already have like all of the costumes and at least the bare bones or the skeleton of like a good set and then all you have to do is come up with the story. And I'm saying that like, you know, I'm not saying blase. The story is obviously an important part, but it makes it so much easier for people to be able to experiment and build and do weird stuff, too, because that's the other thing is that Hammer did some weird stuff. Yeah, definitely. Some of the later movies and the movies in the 70s were pretty weird. Yep. And that's what this allowed for. You know, they did their stalwart stuff. They did the stuff that made sense. And then they're like, you know what? It's the 70s. It's England. <laughs> the Beatles are doing acid. Let's get weird. <laughs> Q Dracula 80, 1972. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but this one, it's a pretty typical Hammer film. You've got Peter Cushing, who's kind of your main character, is Dr. Namaroff, Richard Pascoe, who played Paul Heights, Barbara Shelley, who played Carla Hoffman, sort of our femme fatale in the movie. And then you have Christopher Lee, who plays Professor Carl Meister, who also, even though he's a professor, really kind of acts more like a detective. He's definitely in the kind of Van Helsing role in this film. Yeah. And he kind of like wears the Sherlock Holmes like Uh half cape, you know, thing. So he kind of looks like a detective too, even though he's a professor. But that's kind of your main cast of characters. You have Dr. Namaroff and his nurse slash assistant slash love interest, Carla. At the beginning of the movie, there's this sort of situation where this young woman dies who's pregnant, and then they go to find her husband and find that he's been hanged. And they draw in the man, uh, his name is Bruno, 
Bruno's dad and his brother, Paul, to come in and try to figure out what happened. And they're just like, oh, well, this was just a murder-suicide. He killed his pregnant you know, girlfriend and then killed himself. And they're pretty much going to leave it at that. But Carla's like, no, there have been all these unsolved murders in the past five years. We can't just keep letting this happen. While Dr. Namaroff is like, no, no, nothing weird is happening. These stone dead people are fine. This is perfectly normal. And then Paul gets in and is like, I don't believe this shit. And then he kind of taps Professor Meister to come in and help assist him with the investigation. So you got a lot of stuff going on. You have Carla who, you know, she kind of develops feelings for Paul. At the same time, Dr. Namaroff is in love with her. So there's like this strange triangle thing that's happening. She's like, I can't leave. And then she's like, no, I want to leave. A mystery besides, because we have to figure out, is the Gorgon real? Right. Well, I mean, something hinky is going on because these people are being turned to stone. But why is Carla, you know, not able to leave? And why is Dr. Namaroff being really weird and not letting people investigate this? And why is everybody just like, oh, no, it's fine. We're okay with these stone people being buried. It's fine. We don't care. And the police officer, too, is kind of just like, whelp. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is definitely like the whole, like, the villagers know stuff, but they're not telling And they're not happy about it, but it's also just the reality under which they've lived for so long that they're like, yeah, apparently this is like a thing that sometimes people die and get turned to stone and we don't have the resources to deal with this. Because there's a total of three police officers in this entire place. Yeah. It's kind of like American Werewolf in London where they're (laughs) like, there's definitely werewolves, but just just don't go outside. It's fine. Yeah. Like just stay inside. It's all good. And like a werewolf myth, the Gorgon also attacks under the full moon, which apparently it's going to be a full moon for like two weeks during the course of this film, (laughs) which has nothing to do with the myth. No. 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 Medusa had, there was no like moon situation. No. At all. No. Yeah. No, there's no moon thing associated with the Gorgon's. It's a nice touch, though. It keeps it, like, very firmly in the realm of horror. Yeah. There's, like, you know, the call of of Megara, who's the name of the Gorgon in this one, which they pronounce all different types of ways. They do. Yes. <laughs> Between people, it's, like, Megara, Megara. Megara. Megara, yeah. yeah. But the draw of her is too strong during the full moon, so... Carla can't leave and that's when she also will like attack or call people to her to turn them into stone which also once again Medusa did not call anybody right Uh, in fact she just wanted to be left alone yes yeah yeah Medusa was uh, pretty content to be by herself it's so funny that you know we picked this one because you know I have big capital O opinions about Medusa and this is another situation where it's like, no, she's drawing the men yeah. to her. Yeah. She's calling for them to come to her so she can turn them to stone. When, Depending on the translation or the reading of the original Medusa myth that you have, it can be either that she did draw men to her or that she wanted to kill them because she was vengeful. And then there's also readings that are like, no, she was depressed that she killed people. She didn't want to kill people. That's why she was by herself. Yeah. This is like the tricky thing with like ancient mythology is that when you're talking about like the classical era, there is no definitive myth. Like myths were regional and they were not, you know, they were written down, but it was oral storytelling. And I mean, honestly, if we're talking about 
any myth or religion that is actually truly the case because you know even with the bible like we're talking translations of translations of different writings and different people's interpretations of oral history but especially in greek mythology like there is no definitive like document that you can point to like a bible or a quran or or you know something like that nothing like that exists you know you have everything from regional mythology you have historians bringing in mythology. You have Homer, you have Hesiod, then you have the Roman interpretations with Ovid in Metamorphosis taking on the Greek myths. So it's a hot mess, but where the mess gets hotter is that when you look at who had access to translating these myths up until very, very, very recently, they were white Christian men. Mm -hmm. And so they were writing from a very white Christian male-centric perspective, which if you look historically, was not so great to women, Yeah, you know, and was in a very calculated way doing things to paint a woman like Medusa out as being a villain to Perseus's hero, you know, and luckily there are a lot of really great women, non-binary folks, you know, gender fluid folks working in classics now who are translating and interpreting from a completely different perspective and who are bringing that perspective and that sensibility to the translation work and shedding new light on a lot of these myths and looking at them from a different critical perspective, which I love. Like, that was not even happening when I was in college, like getting my degree. But now we're seeing like all these people doing this really, really great work that doesn't always put, you know, a woman like Medusa, you know, who is a mythological figure and is painted as a monster and a villain through and through as just a, you know, a diametrically binary good and evil situation. They're bringing a lot more nuance to it. And it's great. I love it. But we didn't have that back in the day. (laughs) I mean, they did not have that when they were making the movie. The translations they were working from was like, Medusa, bad snake lady, Perseus, good hero. Yeah. (laughs) This one definitely runs parallel to that. Yeah. Um, Medusa or Megara in this one and the Megara slash Carla figure is bad. She's a seductress. You know, almost because she's calling these men to come in to this castle that nobody wants to go to. And when Carla enters the building, she's okay. Yeah. She doesn't get pursued, I guess you could say. Although you can't say that she only goes after men because the very first death in the entire movie is a woman. Yes. She flees after Bruno, who, since this girl is pregnant, Bruno is like, I'm going to go see your father and I'm going to make sure that he understands I'm not going to leave my obligations. And so she, of course, runs after him after she gets dressed, but then she gets caught up in the area of this castle and that's when she turns into stone. And then Bruno is like half turned and hangs himself. The other thing is like in the original myth, the person turns to stone like immediately. And in this one, it's like it takes a little while. Yeah. Depending on, I guess, their level of exposure, because they don't immediately turn to stone. It's like they go into heart failure and then they turn into stone later. In fact, Bruno and Paul's father is able to pen a letter to Paul to say, like, I'm turning into stone Yeah, prior to him actually dying. He has enough time to do that. Yeah. And I want to touch on that very, very first death, because although this was 1964, 
and you would see it more overtly in later Hammer films, especially in the 70s, you can see little hints, just like in Dracula's Daughter, of just a touch of acknowledgement of queer women mm-hmm. in, in Hammer films. Like, it's a blink-if-you-miss-it kind of scenario if you're not coming at it from that mindset or or really thinking in those terms. It's not going to be obvious. It's not in your face. But you can see, like, I just think it's so interesting that we have Medusa or Megara. I keep calling her Medusa. Uh, We have Megara, who seems to be this, you know, is poised as this seductress killer, not limiting her targets to men. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And so you see that throughout Hammer, you know, it's just like that in most of the 60s films. It's a blink if you miss it. It's just a slight kind of a hat tip nod kind of a thing. It becomes way more overt in the 70s with films like Vampire Lovers. But I just love that that's there, you know, just that it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I see. I see you. British people were ahead on that. They were like, we know that this is sexy. Yeah. Let's just like little, little drops. We don't want it to get banned by censors, but. Oh, yeah. We know that this is sexy. We're giving people what they want. We're giving them people what they want. And I love that. I appreciate that as a part of, you know, Hammer history is that they were well ahead of sort of queer representation in, you know, especially vampire movies. I don't know why. I know that we've talked about it before, but I'm like, my brain is not working enough to be able to summon something wise to say about it, you know, but like vampire fiction vampire movies television that kind of thing has always been kind of on the cutting edge of queer representation oh yeah so and hammer movies kind of helped usher that in and i think it's also because in england at this point in time it was something that had already been discussed pretty heavily Mm -hmm. the 70s were very transformative in england it wasn't exactly the same as the experience that we had in the united states where we had sort of this transformation in the 70s and then we snapped back to like family values and like capitalism yay in the 80s england didn't have and and the uk in general didn't have that exact same sort of experience that we did right so yeah societally yeah so like queer you know representation in movies and books and then even moving forward until now was a little bit less like groundbreaking yeah you know to them as it was to us where it was like oh well we can't talk about queer people in media and like not even on tv until the late 90s oh yeah when people were starting to feel like will and grace I think we don't remember how groundbreaking Will and Grace was in the early 2000s when that was like, oh, my God, there's a syndicated television show where there's two, not just one, but two gay characters. Well, and then later, you know, bringing other people in as side characters. But like Jack and Will were both 100 percent gay all the time, never hidden. And that was very like groundbreaking. Oh, yeah. I mean, despite how... Whatever she has revealed herself to be these days, like, I remember how insanely groundbreaking it was when uh, Ellen DeGeneres came out on her show. Like, that was, uh, you know, huge, 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 huge. Yeah. And, you know, the kind of implications and the discourse around that. And for a moment there, you know, because Ellen's coming out, I don't remember what year it happened in, but it definitely predated Will and Grace by a significant amount of years. Yeah. It almost felt like she came out and broke that ground and then 
nothing else happened for a while. Like, right. you know, TV had to kind of stay. Like, she she cracked the door open, but nobody was bursting out of the closet until much later. Yeah, I think she came out in, like, 94 or 96. And then the next big thing that happened in terms of gay TV was Friends, where at the very beginning right. of Friends, Ross's wife is like, yeah. just kidding, I'm gay, and I want to split up and keep our kid. Yeah. But that was, like... She was not, you know, necessarily a main character. She wasn't somebody no. that you're seeing all the time as where Will and Grace was, which I know that I'm totally digressing from the <laughs> Gorgon, but it's still an important conversation to have. Oh, yeah. Our experience with gay media was very different on yes. the whole. I mean, you did see it a little bit, but it was mostly in like softcore. You know, I'm thinking like Witchblade oh, and yeah, like yeah. stuff like that. You would get that like sort of lesbian content, but it's like, it's a softcore porn. This is not like a big budget movie that's being released to a theater. Yeah, definitely. Not not a regular theater anyways. Right. Yeah. <laughs> a a non-grindhouse. Yes. <laughs> kind of a situation. But another way that this movie, like obviously this came out in 1964. So there's still some traditional stuff that's happening in it. Oh, yeah. And one of the things that I thought was really funny is like when Daddy Heights comes in and he's like, hey, just so you know that there's some supernatural shit going on and Dr. Namroff's like, we are men of science. You cannot believe in that stuff. Yeah. I thought that was hilarious. And and then Daddy Hyde says, that's the least scientific thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's funny because this is something that always happens in movies like you have the stalwart man of science who cannot believe that anything weird would possibly happen in the town in which he lives and everything is totally normal and not weird forever never amen and then you have this other doctor who comes in he's like just kidding there are definitely vampires you need garlic and steaks and we're definitely gonna have to cut the head off of somebody here because that's science yeah i specialize in vampire science and This is also Germany, which Dr. Van Helsing was German. Yeah. And, you know, like, (laughs) there's this um, sort of lineage of, like, doctors of science in Germany who are like, actually, I just need to tell you that there are some very weird things that are happening, and I can certainly help you, but it's going to sound really weird, and (laughs) it has to do with the moon and... Uh, Greek myths that are impregnating women, not impregnating, but like uh, possessing possessing women with their spirits. And you're certainly going to need this bag or this room full of like really weird stuff in order to fight her. And in this case, like, although Daddy Heights, I can't remember his first name, so I'm just going to keep calling him Daddy Heights. He kind of dies off early. Yeah. Then you have Professor Meister, also Meister, probably German, who comes in and does the same shit. He's like, we're probably going to have to, like, use some mirrors and uh, cut some people's heads off. It's going to be okay, but you're just going to have to trust me here. (laughs) Plus, you have uh, Peter Cushing in my favorite sort of Peter Cushing archetypal role, which is highly suspect man of science. (laughs) Highly suspect man of science. Yes. Like, where did you get your doctorate, sir? I'd love to know. Where are you a professor? Yeah, like, I am a highly respected man of science in society, but when I close the door in my little laboratory, I'm doing stuff that is uh, maybe not so great, Yeah, but I will be authoritative and, you know, and send you away or slap you if you, uh, (laughs) you know, if you question me. If you get too hysterical. Yeah, yeah. He's so good at that role and he plays that role so often in Hammer Horror Films and it's just, yeah, that is like his... uh, 
his best kind of role is like this like because it's like a very like kind of like a snobby like like no yeah this thing that i'm doing looks highly unethical but i know more than you i'm the head of this laboratory hospital whatever university it's gonna be in any given film right and i know better than you good day sir <laughs> good day good day <laughs> just yell good day louder yeah yeah i wish there was a movie where two people just yelled good day at one another <laughs> and you know every time i hear that in a movie it just makes me think of willy wonka oh yeah willy yes. wonka and the chocolate or what yeah i guess it's charlie and the chocolate factory which one is it which one is the gene wilder one i think it's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory okay. is the Gene Wilder one. That's the only what I, one that counts. Yeah. At the end when, you know, he's like, you haven't won anything. And then he goes, good day, sir, to the grandpa and to Charlie. I was like, imagine being a little child and Gene Wilder <laughs> yelling good day, sir, at you. I would just d- dissolve into tears. Like, even if I was in the right, I'd be like, oh, I messed up. I can't do this. Yeah. <laughs> Remember the first time I saw that? I was so like genuinely upset <laughs> yeah. at that scene. You're like, this isn't fair. Yeah. He did all the things. Yes, they drink the fizzy lifting drink, but he's not as bad as Mike TV. Jeez. <laughs> or Scarlet or uh, Violet, but regard, I mean, I love that movie so much. Me I saw too. it a kajillion times. I'm actually kind of excited about the Timothy Chalamet thing that's coming out later. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to watch it. I saw the first teaser trailer. Mm -hmm. So he has the right look. Mm -hmm. But the personality in the trailer did not work for me. Yeah. And I know like, you know, the books be damned. Gene Wilder is Willy Wonka. Oh, yeah. Period. And I know that this is supposed to be like sort of a prequel to the Gene Wilder one and he looks just right but that affect is just I don't know and and it's just a trailer so it may work but I couldn't get the personality okay. in the trailer so we're going down this road yeah it's fine you know Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was a British movie so we can <laughs> argue that this is relevant yeah fantasy casting if you had to cast somebody as oh, young God. Gene Wilder Willy Wonka who would you pick? I don't know. I would get in a time machine and cast young Gene Wilder. <laughs> I know. Like, I'm trying to think of somebody who can capture that same amount of, like, manic energy to, like, sweet, genuine, yeah. yes. like, I don't want to say insanity, but, you know, like, you can tell that he's not in touch yeah. with, like, what's yeah. happening in the real world. And there are times when he's sweet and genuine and kind but then there are also times where he's like manic and just kind of like out there so i don't even know who you could and he's like that in all of his films oh yeah that's the same reason why you know and no disrespect i i think it's like perfectly great that they did it and whatever but it's the reason why i don't like the young frankenstein musical oh yeah is i just i can't with it you know like the movie is just it's like sacred, you know, and his performance <laughs> is just, I can't see anybody else in that role, you know. So this wouldn't work for young Willy Wonka, but like, what about Tilda Swinton? Oh, that's interesting. I just like, okay, I'll tell you somebody that I would be interested in seeing try out the role, Bill Hader. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, I could see that. Bill Hader is like my favorite wild card right now. Yeah. Because I finished the show Barry, which was like 
completely off the deep end. But also I loved him in It and I loved him on, you know, yes, I could definitely see that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if he could pull it off, but if anybody could, I feel like he's got the right mix of like being like a serious actor, but also just having like that absurdist comedy thing yeah it's really really hard to kind of like put a name to yeah or martin short as like yeah old yeah. willy wonka yeah martin short definitely i've been watching only murders in the building lately oh, yeah. it's really good nice and it's about a podcast so that also is related to what we're talking about <laughs> bringing us all the way back around yeah the costumes are fantastic like they are Hammer Studio Films, you cannot beat their costuming. Oh, yeah. They probably just have, like, rooms and rooms full of just amazing, you know, at the time, they probably had, like, whole houses worth of just, like, beautiful Victorian, like, dresses and cloaks and capes and and cravats and and brooches for the women and jewelry, all kinds of stuff. Megara's dress in this, fantastic. Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I think is so fun about this film is the red herring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Throughout the film, we find out about a couple of Dr. Nemiroff's patients, including this woman, Marianne. This is a sort of mental health facility that mm-hmm. he's running, which, you know, like, let's be clear, this was filmed in the 60s, and it's a Victorian slash turn-of-the-century portrayal, so, like, you know... Yeah. Sketchy portrayals of mental health, just saying, like, definitely. You know, there are so many films of that era that just aren't so great in terms of the portrayal of uh, mental health or the facilities available to people, which weren't so great around that time. Mm-hmm. So just know that going in. But um, we have this woman, Marianne, who is a patient at the hospital and is known to be prone to sort of these violent episodes where she is attacking her caretakers, especially during the full moon. And so there is this kind of whole thread throughout the film, especially early on, where Carla is really just, you know, this assistant, you Mm -hmm. know, she's sort of our heroine, our sweet, innocent heroine, who's you know, kind of under the thumb of this doctor and it's a little like not great, you know, in terms of power dynamics. But she is definitely not who you originally are supposed to be led to believe is the Gorgon. We Mm -hmm. know as the film progresses that the Gorgon is really this spirit that is possessing people. And so Marianne becomes the obvious choice. Right. And then, of course, they pull the rug out from under us and Marianne dies about Uh, I'd say two thirds of the way through the film. And so then you're left to wonder, like, is the Gorgon just some other person in the town who's lurking in the castle? It's not until quite late in the film that we start to really come to realize that it's Carla. And I think that in terms of storytelling, it's done really, really well. Mm -hmm. You know, I kind of guessed that Marianne was going to be a red herring pretty early on, but it doesn't bother me at all. Like, I like that device, like, especially in a more mystery-based horror film. I like when you have the person and you're like, oh, yeah, as a viewer, I know that this person is not it, but I don't necessarily know who the actual monster or villain or whatever is. Mm -hmm. But I like that this character is sort of set up 
for the sake of the characters to sort of pin blame on and be misdirected and all of that. So I thought that was a really great storytelling device. Yeah, I agree. And I also really liked after Marianne dies, Dr. Nemiroff takes her brain out. Yeah. And Carla comes in and she's like looking at him weird. And he's just kind of like plays it off like this is serious science get over it yeah you know like i know the brain is gross but get over it yeah and he just dumps it into a jar and then covers it with a cloth and then barely washes his hands <laughs> i'm like very good doctoring there thank you dr namaroff i wonder if that was supposed to be a nod the brain thing a nod to peter cushing as dr frankenstein i think there's so. so much like brain removal and brain in jar action throughout the whole hammer run of frankenstein and peter cushing is typically the one you know meddling with brains uh, that felt like a nice nod even if it wasn't intentional i was like oh there's peter cushing messing with a brain of course over the top brain in jar action i like that <laughs> i like that one other signature thing that I really liked about this movie is towards the end, there's a good old fashioned atmospheric dude fight over a woman. Yeah. And how often do we get those in, in movies nowadays where two dudes fight all over this friggin' mansion, all over the inside of this castle? They're just slamming each other into walls and breaking coat racks and Paul is using a very heavy cast iron candelabra while somehow Peter Cushing is fending him off with a sword. Where did he get that sword? It's like a saber almost, like a pirate saber. <laughs> he was probably like something something British military yeah. something something award or maybe he just took it off the wall. That's possible too. Because at that point in time, I think we have to assume that Dr. Namaroff has determined that Carla slash whoever is the gorgon like has to be killed yeah you know, at that point and so he's like wielding it but then paul wanders in he's like well gonna have to kill paul too uh -huh. so taken away with my dastardly plot but yeah i just <laughs> hammer movies all the time have like one seminal dude fight yeah in in some sort of like atmospheric situation where furniture gets broken and they're you know Swords are getting caught in walls slash furniture, and it's great. It's yeah. great. You, you got to love a dude fight over a woman. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's fun, too, because, uh, you know, Namorov feels like, you know, in, in the grossest power dynamic -y way possible, like he has, you know, some kind of ownership over Carla. And Paul, I'm like, honey, you just met her. Oh, yeah. Like, uh... yeah, like, you know, Carla has told him that Dr. Namaroff loves her, but he doesn't know anything else outside of that. Right. And really, that seems like a thin, you know, excuse. It seems like there has to be some sort of like prior relationship or like yeah. some other sort of attachment dynamic that keeps Carla with Dr. Namaroff because like. There are some uncomfortable passes made at her. Yeah. She's definitely not down with that. So. Yeah. Well, I think that points to, you know, what is revealed toward the end of the film is that she originally came into the hospital as a patient right. with amnesia and only has these amnesia episodes now, it seems, when the moon is full. And so I guess it's one of those... And we see this in other films of this time, even a couple of Hammer films, if I'm recalling correctly, where it's like, oh, well, she is the one being cared for. And yet she's well enough to sort of rise to this role of seeming equal with the doctor. To her mind, she is well, other than these incidents that she has no memory of. 
but the doctor knows both that she is not entirely well and also, you know, has this sort of claim of like debt or ownership over her. Like, I am your caretaker, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think there's some obligation of love. Like, well, I helped you and I rehabilitated you and I have given you this role that is very important, but not important enough for me to share everything with you, you know? Yeah. Um, and I don't know if that's her condition or because she's a lady, mm-hmm. but also you owe me your right. love. And that's icky. Yeah. It does make me wonder what Dr. Nemroff's intentions were towards the end of the movie. Yeah. When you see him in the castle with the sword, was it that he had figured out what was happening and he wanted to protect Carla and just let the Gorgon continue to possess her so that he could keep her close in proximity and therefore kill Paul to kind of like stop the line of inquiry at that point and also kill Professor Meister because you see Dr. Nemiroff's kind of like lackey from the hospital go and try and kill him multiple times. Yeah, um, that's true. So was his intention to say like, okay, this is the price that I have to pay in order for me to keep Carla alive and safe and close to me is I have to kill Professor Meister and Paul and let the Gorgon keep doing the thing. And like like, what's one town person once a month kind of thing. Or, you know, I think they said it was seven murders in five years. So, So not even really that much more lately, but it's a little bit more because there's attention. Yeah. Versus like, you know, this is happening more regularly. So was it that or was it like Dr. Namaroff wanted to go and be the hero? Like he had figured it out and he wanted to be the hero. And I don't think that we get a clear answer one way or the other. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because otherwise, like if he knew Paul was going to be there, if he knew he was going to meet Carla there, what was the... Because he obviously picks a fight with Paul. But was that just by incident that Paul was there and he really did want to also kill the Gorgon? Because... What ends up happening is that the Gorgon kills Dr. Nemroff, right. turns him to stone underneath a curtain. Yeah. <laughs> he falls into a very, very dusty curtain. <laughs> I just like wanted to sneeze just looking at that. Oh, but yeah. It kind of keeps it purposefully ambiguous. It seems like it's probably the former. Like Dr. Nemroff has a vested interest and that's kind of why he's been like putting down all of these like weird things and just like the stone people are okay. Leave it alone. Yeah. And he wanted to keep Carla close to him. It seems like it's probably that, but there's an argument for either way. So the Medusa myth in general deals a lot with, if you're looking at it through a critical lens, a lot with sort of, you know, the consequences of women rejecting men. There's, you know, some consequences of rape that gets really complicated when you talk about like rape as translated from mythology yeah, there's some problematic translation there. There's also just like really problematic stuff with like men and male gods assaulting women in mythology and all of that. But I was curious in this story in particular, because this is part of the original story within the film and not something that's tied to mythology, though I have seen this in other myths, in other world traditions and in Greek mythology, too. What do you think about the whole fact that we're dealing with cycles of the moon and a femme person? Ooh, interesting. I don't know that that was purposeful by the storytellers, um, but I do think that that's really interesting way to look at it. 
The only reason I don't think it was purposeful in terms of the storyteller is because this is the 60s and mm-hmm. I think it's a, a male writer in this case. Two men wrote this. It was based off of a original story and then adapted into a screenplay by John Gilling or Gilling, not sure how to pronounce that, who also did The Pirates of Blood River. So I don't know if it was purposeful on their part. However, I do think it's an interesting thing to look at in terms of like menstruation, because that's always the very next thing that I think of in like ginger snaps. Yeah. Um, you know, like hitting puberty and, and getting your period and then it coming once every 28 days, just like the full moon. And it's a very interesting lens through which to look at this movie. And also like to kind of lend into um, what you were talking about, about sexual assault, you know, one of the readings of the Medusa myth is that she seduced Neptune right in uh, Minerva's temple and Minerva was pissed. So she turned Medusa into the, you know, stone turning eyeball snake haired woman there's another reading though that medusa is is raped by neptune and the rape of neptune in minerva's temple regardless of you know intent or whatever minerva's still pissed yeah so she punishes the woman in thinking that she seduced neptune and that's why you know she gets the punishment and then there's also the idea that perseus had to go and kill Medusa, when in reality, like Medusa just wanted to be left alone. Yes. So it's very interesting. There are so many ways to read that. Like, I've actually personally had arguments with my partner about (laughs) the Medusa myth one way or the other, because it's fascinating to me to Mm -hmm. hear like, oh, here's the Ovid version of it. And now we're like reexamining it. Like, hey, maybe Ovid just had a vested interest in thinking that women were evil. Yeah. And we kind of have that in this movie, too. Like, you have... Is the woman evil or is she stricken and she needs to be protected? Yeah. It's also just funny that the full moon exists all the time in this movie. <laughs> like, it never goes away. It's just like full moon constantly and, and there's so many people dying. And of course, it's in service to the movie. But yeah, the full moon is irrevocably linked to femme-presenting people and people who menstruate and things like that. So that's a very interesting lens through which to look at this movie and the fact that she's evil during only the full moon. Yeah. So what are we going to watch next time, Juliet? Uh, We are going to watch, I think, a favorite of both of ours. We haven't been in the 80s for a little bit. It's been, uh, gosh, a couple of months since we've been in the 80s. So we're going to go back to 1987 and watch Slumber Party Massacre 2. Now, don't worry if you haven't seen Slumber Party Massacre 1. It is inconsequential. Has in this literally moment. nothing to do with it. <laughs> yeah, no, no. We're going to see um, <laughs> a really phallic guitar slash drill dream, maybe real killer. This movie is so wonderfully bizarre in yes. all of the best ways. And so just like 80s horror to a T, like all of the things that were influenced by like the early slashers and a nightmare on Elm Street. And yeah, it's it's a good one. And of course, the quintessential chick band in a movie yes. who plays their own song. Yes. <laughs> it's great. I love this one. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. You can support this podcast and hear bonus episodes at patreon.com slash attackofthefinalgirls. We are Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. 
And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Bye.